Hello, everyone listening online, and hello to the SUM Chicago cohort. Today, we will be continuing in our series on the Book of Acts, also known as the Pentecostal Handbook. We will be in Acts chapter 6, where we will look at the case study of the ordination of the first deacons, and then we will, Lord willing, be able to venture into Acts chapter 7 to focus on one of those deacons named Stephen, and he preached a fiery sermon that takes up all of Acts chapter 7, and um, we won't spoil the end for you, but it's going to be a powerful time. Let's welcome our, our visionary leader and pastor, Joe Y. Rostek. Okay, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Acts. We're going to try to go through two chapters today. We'll see with now the time that we have left how we'll be able to fare. But I want us to, uh, to go through these different uh, chapters. I want us to see uh, how they all play together into the story of Stephen. So let's start in uh, Acts chapter 6, verse 1. We're going to learn about the deacons. In those days when the number of the disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So, Joby, I want you to see this along with everybody else as you have your Bible and notebook open, please, is that the deacons were chosen so that the apostles could give their attention to the word and to prayer. We see that the apostles needed to give themselves to the study of God's word and prayer, not first and foremost to charitable outreach. Not first and foremost to technical things in the back of the sound booth. Not first and foremost to counseling. Not first and foremost to building and renovating the building. The most important thing these apostles were supposed to do was to pray and study God's Word. Does everybody see that? Now that does not mean that we as ministers do not do other things. We should be totally willing to get back in the sound booth and help. Lead worship if we need to. Lead the outreach and so forth and so on. But what we have to do is make sure we have a wonderful, devoted life to God in prayer and study of His Word. Because it's those other things that will distract the man or woman of God from prayer and the Word. If all they're doing is going back in the sound booth, then how can they focus on the Word that literally changes lives in that service or in that moment? And if all they're doing is handing out free soup at the soup kitchen, how can they speak a word to that person unless it comes with the prayer and the power of their study when the Bible says study to show yourself approved? So when we look at the Pentecostal handbook, the uh, apostles here are now going to start morphing into what we will call elders. As you go through the book of Acts, we'll learn that they start to appoint elders to replace them. But here at the beginning, it's the apostles, and now they need helpers. They need helpers, and those are deacons. Eventually, these men are going to start dying off, as we're going to see, and now they need a top level of leadership to replace them. Those people, they're going to call elders. 
By the time of Peter's first epistle, right around the end of the book of Acts, Peter is saying, as an apostle, I'm also an elder among the other elders. So we see that morphing into that position. But here we see it being created, this uh, second position being created, deacon. And deacon is going to be a servant in the church. Now, what are they going to do? They're going to serve the people, the widows who need food. The problem that they have at this time is the Greek-speaking Jews and the Hebrew-speaking Jews are not getting along. Sounds like a little bit of culturalism, right? Ethnocentrism or what people would call racism. The Greek Jews were more cultures into the Greek culture, and the Hebrew uh, Jews were more into the Hebrew culture. And now the Greek Jews feel like they're getting left out, so they say, we, the apostles say, we need help to take care of this. Now, what were these deacons going to do? They were simply just going to hand out food. And what did they need to be? They needed to be full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, and they needed to be, have uh, the, the ability to fulfill a responsibility. They had to be responsible. You couldn't just pick anybody out and say, here's a responsibility. If they kept fumble farting, they weren't able to do it. Now, what's amazing about this is where do these men come from? More than likely, they were a part of the followers of Jesus, 120. Part of the nameless, faceless group that was there. 500 saw Jesus uh, ascend to heaven. 120 are in the upper room. These were probably some of those disciples. Here they are, living for Jesus, humbly serving the 12. It was okay if the 12 were in charge as long as they got to be on the team and get on the field. They were all right with that. And that's what's amazing about the church is as it's growing and multiplying, it makes room for more leaders to come and serve God, to be on the team. You don't just have to sit back and be a spectator. So once again, the these apostles make a secondary position, the deacon, and eventually the apostolic post is going to turn into the bishopric or the presbytery, the gathering of elders. So by the time Paul writes in 1 Timothy, it's going to be elders and deacons. Because, of course, not everybody can have the ability to write Holy Scripture and have a personal encounter with Jesus. And that's really what those first apostles had. I disagree with uh, them at the beginning that they had to, an apostle to be in the 12 had to be with Jesus the entire time or that they had to cast lots and get Matthias. No, because I believe Paul replaced Judas. But listen, it was Jesus that personally showed up to Paul, gave him three years of personal mentorship in the desert of Arabia and gave him scripture. So we know that these first 12, minus Judas, now added on with Paul, were a unique office that could never be replicated. So what are they going to have to do? They're going to have to come up with another office that's not going to have the same qualifications they had for writing scriptures and being the first ones to be taught by Jesus. So they're going to implement elders later on. But right now they need servant leaders. And dekanos in the Greek simply means a server. They're going to be the waiters of the church. They're going to be the ones that come and say, how can we help you as the apostle? How can we stand between the apostles and the people? Think about it like that. How can we make sure the people are taken care of and also make sure that the apostles are taken care of? Once again, not saying that the apostles needed to be like Pope somewhere off in the Vatican. That didn't even exist at this point. But that the apostles would not be weighed down with the burdens and the do-diddles of messy ministry and backbiting people and broken technology and all of those things that the gospel could go forth because these men needed to know the word of God. 
The church had to go forward. If you wanted to stop the 5,000 plus movement now of the church, 3,000 from Pentecost, 2,000 from uh, uh, Peter and John's preaching there at the temple, if you wanted to stop the 5,000 men, probably 30,000 families, if you, uh, uh, 5,000 uh, families and with wives and children, probably 30,000 people, who are you going to attack? Attack the apostles. And if you can't take away their salvation, if you can't make them backslide, make them busy. Make them so busy that all they're doing is handling the little issues that they can't get out there and be a powerhouse in the world. And so once again, they had the call, they had to call upon the church and say, we need seven men. We have to keep praying. We have to keep studying God's word. Uh, look for people who are known to be full of the spirit and of wisdom. And so that's why when people come into our church and they say, can I be a deacon or an elder in your church if I don't speak in tongues? No, because you couldn't be a waiter in the New Testament church unless you were filled with the Holy Spirit evidence of speaking in other tongues. That's that terminology that you're going to see all throughout the book of Acts that we have now established that being filled with the Holy Spirit is not equated with salvation. Everybody says, well, I got the Holy Spirit at salvation. Doesn't that mean I was filled? No. In the book of Acts, they were already saved. When Acts chapter 1 comes around, they had already been given the Holy Spirit in John chapter 20. But Jesus said, now you wait in Jerusalem to be filled with power, given power. And then it says in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came, they were filled with the Holy Ghost and spoke in tongues. Nothing to do with salvation. It's a subsequent act of the Holy Spirit after salvation. It's something the Holy Spirit does in somebody who is saved. Only those who are saved can be filled with the Holy Ghost. So that's the first requirement. And what's the second requirement? They have to be full of wisdom. What is wisdom? Is wisdom simply knowledge? No, the definition of wisdom is the application of knowledge. And you could also put in there the disciplined, consistent, mature application of knowledge. What is maturity? The ability to be disciplined. What's the difference between my child who poops on herself and the one who doesn't? They're mature, the maturity, right? So what makes the one mature over the other? The practical application of discipline, not to go poop on themselves. Now, my three-year-old does not have to ever go poop on herself again. She's been pee-peeing on the potty since she was two years old. But the whole last year, she's been poo-pooing on herself. And she's the last one out of all of our children to go through this uh, at this age. She's the longest one, rather, because all of them were poo-pooing on the potty by two and a half. It's her personal decision of rebellion to do that. It's a personal decision when you are irresponsible, lacking wisdom. It is a personal decision for you to walk in folly and not to be disciplined and not to be mature. The Bible says you have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power. This is 2 Timothy 1.7. Power. What else does it say? Love. And what else? Self-discipline or a sound mind. So that's what they're going to do. And we will give our attention to prayer and the word. And I'm so thankful for the elders and the deacons I have in this church that allow me to give myself to prayer and to the word. That's why I've written 10 books. That's why I have a 365 devotional that comes out. Because I have Pastor Berto and Pastor Tony who do counseling and enable me to sit back and write. And then not only just to write, but to see the big picture as I pray. To have a prayer life that can see where we're supposed to be, not just where we're at. 
You see, if all the apostles did was just keep feeding the widows personally, they would never be able to see where they were supposed to be because they were handling problems with where they're at. You've got to have vision which goes beyond where you're at to see where you're supposed to be. Can I get an amen? Thank you. So this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So here you see that full of faith and of the Holy Spirit is another description of being full of wisdom and of the Holy Spirit. So full of faith along with being full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit would probably be the three criteria here. Now here's the thing that I hear a lot from young adults, especially the video gaming, passing gas, Bible college student that can't get it together. Either they can't get their grades up, they can't be responsible in ministry, they can't walk humbly. It's always the same problems with a different group of people. You'll see this one person, oh, they're awesome, but they can't be responsible in day-to-day tasks. Oh, here's another person. They're great in day-to-day tasks, but they can't get their grades up. Oh, here's a person that's great in day-to-day tasks, and they do good in their grades, but you know what? They just got pride on them, and they stink of it all the time. It is difficult in the ministry to find someone that's humble, that's dedicated, that's mature, and has those things together. But the good thing is about SUM and about this cohort is we're willing to invest time into you, resources, and help you get there we love you just the way you are but too much to let you stay there and if you have a call of God on your life this is for your good to be trained up to get your good grades to be trained up in everyday life pastor Jared was telling a testimony before about what revival was like when it came here but there's also testimonies of God doing great things in his life just teaching him how to smile teaching him how to be a people person because he was so much of an introvert those are things that you learn for me I had to learn to be nice and get along with people All that's going to be a part of being full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. But here's something that I hear a lot of people say, and they don't see the connection. I want every uh, introverted or shy uh, person to hear this. Not that we dislike you. Not not that everybody has to be bold and, uh, you know, Italian like me. You don't have to be outspoken like, hey, come here, let me talk to you. You know, you don't have to be like me in that way. But here's the deal. Whenever you say the word, I lack confidence, do you know what that word actually means in the Latin? I'll say it, and you can tell me if it makes sense, uh, clicks into a word you might have heard before. And Jared may want to play this game as well, because I don't know if he knows this, but uh, I'll give the students a, a chance at first. Confide. Confide. In Latin, confidence. Confide. Fide. What what does fide mean, my brother? Faith. Sola de fideo comes from our Reformation. They're celebrating 500 years since Luther nailed the uh, the 95 things against the Catholic Church on the door of Wittenberg uh, on Halloween Day. Uh, this this year makes 500 years of the Reformation, and one of the things they would do is put their doctrines in Latin. These reformers, and so when someone says "I lack confidence," what are they really saying? "I lack faith." Faith in themselves? No, because it never works with you. Never works with you. Pity patty parties won't get you across the bridge. The bridge of the impossible will not be crossed by the pity, by the pitiful, but by the faithful. Put that on Facebook for me, please. The bridge of the impossible will only be crossed by the faithful, not the pitiful. Put it however you can word it, Jared. Jared's a a word maestro, by the way. He's He's a word craftsman. Thank you, good sir. You see, it's not the pitiful. It's not the ones you feel sorry for. It's not the ones you say, I need lamp confidence. I can't get it. No, it's the ones full of faith. Faith in who? Faith in God that do the impossible. 
It's Paul that said, it's not that there's anything good within me. I am what I am by the grace of God. You lack confidence. You lack the ability to be wise. You lack the ability to live a holy life. You lack faith in God. You lack faith in God. It's a faith problem. I was talking to my mentor the other day about somebody, and I can't get into too many details, but I said, why is it they always seem to be going around the merry-go-round of unsuccess in their ministry? And there are times that you're tested with not being successful. Trust me, not everything I've done has worked. But this person I was talking about is always leading towards unsuccess. It's always leading towards another failure. And I asked him why, and he said, because he lacks faith. And at first I didn't get it because this person that I know has lots of faith. If you were to hear them preach, you would say, that's a great man of faith. If you were to hear them tell you about all the troubles they've been through in life, you would say, man, they're still faithful to God. They have so much faith. But here's the problem. They lack faith in the area of submission and wisdom and being the servant God called them to be. They lack faith in the time of testing. And that was what these deacons had to show the apostles. Because so, sometimes people say, well, I'll just go out and, you know, just do whatever I want to do. There's an old saying that says, some were called, some were sent. Others just took the microphone and went. I'll just do this thing on my own. Thank you very much. I don't need a pastor to ordain me. I don't need to be a, appointed as a deacon. I'll just go. But see, there's a problem with your faith, isn't there? You, you think that rebellious person has so much faith. No, really, they have so little faith because they can't trust God and his church to appoint them. And then you meet the person with pity, and they say, oh, feel sorry for me. I've tried so many things, and I've failed, and it just doesn't work, and, but I'm still faithful in God. And you may say, oh, sister, you're so strong in faith. And then they'll say, well, I just lack confidence, Jackie. Pray for me. And you'll say, oh, yeah, I'll just pray for you. Not understanding like I didn't. That the very reason they're in pity and the reason why they're lacking confidence is all the same area of issue. It's an issue of faith. They lack faith in God. Faith in God to cross the bridge of the impossible. What's faith in God look like when you're an SUM student? To take your lickings and keep on ticking. That shows you have faith in God. Shows you have faith in God when you're teachable. When you're humble, when I wrote the 201 book, I showed that there are four attributes of a person we send out into the ministry. They're hungry for God. They're teachable. They're humble. What's the other one, Jared? Uh, they're humble. They're hungry. Um, they're teachable. And they're always a servant, I believe. Please just double check on the book for me if you have to grab one in the back. Because those are the kind of attributes that they were looking for back then. And so do we want to be named with these people? Do you want hands laid on you by an anointed man or woman of God and say, I need you, and I need God to place his spirit upon you to help me? Will you be responsible? Will you be full of faith? Will you be full of wisdom and the Holy Ghost and do the ministry? Come on, somebody, that God has called us to do. Will you be that kind of person that when it's time for you to be called on, you can say, here I am, Lord. Send me. I will go. Now, there may be times where you have to take a time of sitting down. Our church allows people to sit down and work on their areas if there's weakness in the ministry because we don't throw people to the side. 
I heard of a company in the Silicon Valley that doesn't fire anybody. But this is what they say. You have to be willing to be trained and retrained and retrained, and you have to stick with us. Otherwise, you'll quit, but we won't fire you. Now, obviously, if they, they break a violation, you know, something, you know, you steal or whatever. But isn't that kind of almost an intimidating proposition now? Because now if you start sucking at your job, you just can't quit and say, well, they didn't help me. No, it's because you're not taking the help they give you. And if now you started off as, say, the chief operating officer, now you're the janitor, that's not their fault. That's your fault because they're saying, hey, we'll keep finding a place for you that matches your skill because we won't fire you because, you know, we want to believe in people. But if you find yourself as the janitor, is that their fault? And is it the fault of the early church that other men and women were not called? And we'll find out that women get called later on. But was it anybody's fault? No. It was just when we have to pick seven, these are the top seven that we want. Stephen, Philip, Procurus, Nicar, Timon, Parmenius, Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. These were the seven that were named. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. See, the word of God was spreading, needed more help. Now we got more help. Word of God keeps spreading. What will stop the Holy Ghost sandwich from going forward? See, if you got the gospel spreading here as a bun and you got the gospel spreading here in the bun, what do you need in the middle to have the church growth movement keep happening? Leadership. What is the meat of the church growth movement? leadership, discipleship. Church is growing. We need leadership. Church is growing. We don't put in leaders. We don't hold our leaders to a high standard. Church stops growing, or at least it stops growing God's way. We have leaders and the church is going. We need more leaders so that the church keeps growing. That is the meat of the church growth sandwich. Do you guys understand it? Growth, leadership, growth. Never forget it. The word of God begins to spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of the priests became obedient to the faith. Remember, I talked about this before, the clash between them and the Jewish leadership. Now priests are even getting saved. And here's something that you notice, and here's another little tidbit, and this is where I like to keep Jared's attention because if I have a professor here, I always like to make sure that they know that I'm doing my studies, is that the book of Acts uses the word disciples to describe the church of Jesus Christ. What is the number one title in the epistles for the church of Jesus Christ, the people in the church? What do we call them? No, what's the number one word that's used? Saints. Isn't that something? That the word transforms from disciples to saints. It's not that they ever stopped being disciples. It's just that now this became that number one attribute about them. They were more than just students and followers. They were literally beacons of holiness in the world. Saints, holy ones. Because they were such great disciples, they were known as saints. They were known as being holy holy, mighty men and women of God, that even the priests are coming to the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power. Now watch, oh my goodness. We see probably the fourth and fifth attribute of what made a deacon what they were. We saw before they need to be full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit. Then it says later on they needed to be full of um, faith. Thank you. And then now the description of Philip is full of grace and now full of power. I think that pretty much says it right there, doesn't it? You could put those five attributes together and go around to any church and say, this is our standard. 
We will not give responsibility to anyone less than the best. I'll be the only deacon here if I have to be. Because aren't apostles deacons? Yeah, they're deacons in the sense they're servants. Does an apostle ever stop serving? No. In the military, no matter what rank you go to, you're still capable of doing all the ranks below you. We never stop serving. Amen? Okay, but now think about it like this. We've only seen the apostles doing the signs and the wonders. Remember we talked about that before? And I said, get ready because now we're going to start seeing the other boys get a chance. And it's tied into leadership. It doesn't mean that they weren't doing it before. As a matter of fact, where do we get the, the, uh, the biblical command to sell, send you out two by twos? That's from Jesus. He sent them out two by twos. And how many went out that day when he sent them out before his preaching? Seventy-two. So 72 preachers went out. Could that have been Philip and these guys at that time? Yeah, they could have already been doing signs and wonders. Remember, they come back rejoicing. They're saying the demons even submit to your name. And then what does Jesus say? Don't rejoice because of what you see demons do and how they get cast out. Rejoice because of what? Your names are written in the book of life. So he reminds these guys who are super excited about Pentecostal power. He's like, don't you ever forget, though, it's about you being saved. Because no matter how many Pokemon power you have, or I should say Holy Ghost power that cast out Pokemon power, no matter how much you have, you're still a child of God. You can't do anything but of God. And so now we see Stephen. He's going to get a chance to come up to bat. He's no longer just a spectator in the story of the book of Acts. Now the deacons are doing the things of God. And I love to say it like this. Deacons don't deke around. Deacons make disciples. Because now you'll go to churches and you'll meet a deacon and you'll ask them, oh, man, are you making disciples? Are you doing this and that? And they'll say, no, I'm just on the financial committee, literally. And you say, well, how would you get on the financial committee? Well, somebody voted me in. Were you full of faith, full of grace, full of power, full of wisdom, full of, you know, all of these things? No, they just needed somebody to be on the financial committee. So what do you do? Well, we talk about finances. We vote the pastor in and out. We decide what to do in the church. Hold on. Do you see any of that in the Bible? No, but that's what our pastor told us we would do. Isn't that sad? I call that deacon around. And sometimes people say, well, you know, I like to cast out demons. And other people say, and I like to say it, I like to cast out deacons. Because sometimes you got to cast them out to do the work of God. Because if you get a deacon that's deacon around in the way you got to cast them out, you got to cast out a deacon like you do a demon. You guys get all quiet when I talk like that, but you haven't been around the church world too long. Trust me, that's true. I remember dealing with deacons in the church I used to work at. They had no idea what the ministry was about. They weren't trained. They weren't disciples of the elders or of the apostles. They were just people that were voted in to kind of be yes men for the pastors or make committee-based meetings. And somehow they got a lot of power and started manipulating. And now they were out of control. They had lost the entire purpose of what a deacon was for. The idea of the deacons here was to be disciples who make disciples. So are they less than the elders in power? No, we're going to see right now they have the same power as the apostles do, soon to become elders. We see that they preach the same way they do. Can't get into it today, but we'll get into it next week as we go over seven. But you'll see they preach with the same exact authority and power as the apostles do. And as you're going to see, they're going to die as the apostles do. As a matter of fact, Stephen is going to be the first Christian martyr. This young man preached one sermon. Well, I shouldn't say one sermon because he was preaching and then that was what brought him to this place. But it was one sermon that cost him his life. What would you do if you knew you could only preach one sermon? Or if your sermon that you're preaching this week would be your last sermon? How, how would you preach it with tenacity? These men preached as if it would be their last because they never knew if it was. 
So Stephen, a man full of grace and power, Acts uh, chapter 6, verse 8, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Caesarea and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. There's a few keys that you got to catch here. Number one, he is confrontational in his preaching. We'll know that later on as we actually hear his last sermon. But he is doing it full of grace and power. He's not doing it to just offend, to be a rude person. He's offending the mind to open up their hearts. He's showing them their sin, that they'll change and repent. In other words, he's doing what my wife did, telling them that their breast stinks when they don't know that their breast stinks so bad that it stinks up the whole room. And if you haven't heard that joking for people here, my wife walked into my office the other day. She says, your room stinks. And I go, what, is, what does it smell like? And she goes, it smells like your breath. You need to open up a window. So I did. And then I eventually left the office and I came back in a little bit later and I smelt my own stank. I had just become so used to it. I didn't know it had smelled so bad. Now, it wasn't just my breath. I'll leave it at that. But I had woke up in the morning and I hadn't showered and other things were happening. But you know what? I had to be told the, the truth. And if the truth ain't setting you free, it's probably making you mad. And you know what? Fish don't know they're wet because they're wet all the time. And sinners don't know they're in sin because they're in sin all the time. And you don't know what you don't know. So you need gospel preachers to show you what you don't know. Amen? And we need to be accountable to each other to show each other what we don't know so we can pick out the specks. The best one to pick out a speck is the one without a plank in their eye. So hypocrites aren't the one to teach us to get specks out of our eye. The drunkard today that says, I don't go to church because there's all these hypocrites there, he's actually doing the work of the devil. I would never trust him to do eye operation on me. Are you listening? As Paul Washer says, whenever he meets them, he says, you're doing great work for your father, the devil. And so anytime you hear anybody put down the church and they think they're doing a favor, just let them know who they're really working for. They're working for the devil. And you can tell them, hey, you know what? You sound just like somebody else I know who talks about the church like that. Oh, who's that? The devil, because he's also the accuser of the brethren. That will help shut them down real quick, okay? And so the idea is here is that the church of Jesus Christ is growing, it's moving, signs and wonders are happening, but they're being opposed. Now, remember we talked about the temple being the central location for the Jews, but they also met in smaller synagogues. Here is a certain synagogue that has a problem with them. They may be left over from the Passover feast. These people came from Cyrene and Alexandria, from Cilicia and Asia, and they probably are there because of the festival, or they're just there because of the temple and doing certain things. But they're not really from there. They're visiting in Jerusalem, and they've got a big problem with these guys. But here's the thing. They're not like Gamaliel saying, just leave them alone. They do the better thing, which is let's confront them and have an all-out debate debate and discussion. The problem is they get rocked, and they get rocked over and over, and they're probably getting rocked publicly over and over again, and now they get mad, and this is where everybody switches sides from where they were before with Gamaliel's advice because we know that Stephen gets stoned and the coats fall at Paul's feet, so he must have permission from Gamaliel and the rest of them boys because they changed their opinion, as you're about ready to see, about how we're going to deal with them. We're not just going to beat them. We're not just going to leave them alone. We're going to stone them and put them to death and cause this movement to stop now. That's what they think they're going to do. But they couldn't stand up against the wisdom the Spirit uh, gave uh, Philip as he spoke, uh, Stephen as he spoke, rather. Verse 11, 
They then secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard speak, uh, Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen, seized Stephen, and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They seized Stephen <laughs> and brought him before the what? Sanhedrin. Thank you. They produced false witness, witnesses who testified. This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the custom of Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. God is with him. And yet they're making up the same lies they did about Jesus. Is there partial truth in what they're saying? Yes, there always is in the most effective lies, right? There's always a partial truth there. Jesus did say he would destroy the temple and raise it up. But what temple was he talking about? His body. Do you all read the Bible? He said, destroy this temple in three days and I'll rise it up. And this he spake of his what? His body. So they purposely took that out of context as they did with Jesus. And so now, to, Philip's uh, to Stephen's credit, what he's probably doing is exactly what he thought he was supposed to do, which is help the Jews see Jesus is a fulfillment of the Jewish laws. Jesus did rise from the dead, and there is a new temple, a place of worship. We no longer need to bring, bring animal sacrifices, but come to the one sacrifice of Jesus. There is no contradiction. It's a complement to what God had been saying in times past. It is a fulfillment, not an abolishment. Remember that. Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to do what with it? Fulfill the law. So they take him out of context just like they did Jesus, and they're going to start getting angry, but we notice this uh, thing about Stephen here is that his face begins to shine with the glory of God. That's what I think his face is like an angel means that the glory of God comes upon him. We're going to get into Acts chapter 7 uh, next week, but I want you just to stop and, and make this personal, if you could, today, because I think that it matters how you see yourself in the narrative. When we look at the Pentecostal handbook, the real questions that are going to come up are not necessarily the things we don't understand, it's the things we do understand. There may be some questions we don't understand. That's okay. You can go back and study. But here's the thing. Do you understand the narrative we just read in Acts chapter 6? It's a shorter chapter. And do you understand how to apply it to your life? First, see it as it was for them. Don't try to interrupt the story and put yourself in there at the beginning. No, let it speak for itself. Let this ancient witness give you the historical record of the early Pentecostals, the early disciples. And now that you got it, now see yourself in the story. Put yourself there. Let's talk specifically to Metro Praise now. The church is growing, isn't it? Church is growing. Had a lot of visitors yesterday. Youth group is growing. Spanish ministry is growing. What do we need if we want to keep growing? What do we need in that Holy Ghost sandwich right there in the middle? Leadership. And so am I an apostle that saw Jesus Christ or was personally mentored by him that has written scripture? No. But I'm an elder in the apostolic heritage. And so what is my duty now? To appoint other elders and deacons. And so those of you who are here that are not deacons yet, we are watching you as the elders and deacons of the church and seeing, are you full of faith? 
Or do you lack confidence? Are you full of wisdom, the application of knowledge, that you can be trusted with a responsibility and not drop the ball and cause other things to happen that becomes what the Bible says, a burden to your leaders. The Bible says in Hebrews 3, 13, 17, obey your leaders, submit to their authority so that their work among you will be a joy and not a burden because that would be no advantage to you. Are you full of grace, forgiveness, and kindness? And are you full of the Spirit as the Bible describes and what that means, full of power, power that comes through your prayers, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that you're earnestly desiring those gifts to be in your life. Well, if those characteristics are there, then we've got a place for you to serve and to give your life for the ministry. And don't despise the days of small beginnings. I'll tell you a story quickly in closing. I remember first showing up to Bible college, and this was the days of transparencies when you would listen to worship music, uh, uh, go to the chapel, and, and we would have the songs. They would have a big projector. It would be about this big in the middle of, you know, it would be like set right here, actually, and then it would point towards the screen, and then it would be next to it, this big filing cabinet type of thing that we would roll out with the projector, and I saw this awesome Jamaican man. His name was Sean Pender. No, no, he was from the Bahamas, man, Sean Pender. And I just saw him, and he's putting out these transparencies. And, and I was like, man, you are so awesome, man. I want to know about you. I want to get to know you. And I began to hear this guy preach, dude. You couldn't even really have a conversation with him without him preaching to you. He was a powerful preacher. And he began to tell me about the ministry and SUM and all these things. He was just one of the first guys to tell me about the school. And I began to notice that's what he did. Like, that's, that's what the coolest guy I knew, the most radical preacher I knew did. He did the transparency. So I went up to him and I said, Sean, can I do the transparencies? And he goes, no, man, you can't do this. This is my job. I had to wait a year to do this, man. You will get a chance to do this when it's your time. When I grad, I'm so serious. When I graduate, man, you'll be in charge of this. It was literally as if we were talking about like this sacred thing. It was literally like that. And I remember like throughout the school year, he would be like, man, I have to go do something. You go and do it, man. You make sure you stay with the songs, man. You put them up there. You take it away when the preacher comes because I would have to move it out and I would have to put it by, you know, and then just have it all set up like how we do at the little table here. You'd have to move the projector out the way and then you'd have to put the, uh, the pulpit right where the projector was because there wasn't a stage. It was just a floor, you know. And if, if you've ever been to the New Orleans campus, you would understand this. And so literally, God as my witness, as he was getting ready to graduate at the end of the year, he literally took me by the shoulder and said, brother, I want to show you what I'm giving you now. This was a big moment. I'm, I'm being as real as real can be. Brother, this is what I want to give to you now. You are responsible for this. You must teach others how to do this. And I'm just like thinking, I am, I am honored to do this. Like this to me was what ministry was about. And so Sean Penders then said, will you come with me, man, to Miami? I got to pick up my mom. We, she's coming to the graduation. Will you come with me, man, help drive me down there? He didn't have a car, you know. Will you drive me down there and pick up my mom and bring her back? And I was like, of course, man. So we drive 16 hours all the way to Miami, spend the night, pick up his mom, drive all the way back 16 hours. And I got to sit down with one of the most awesomest women of God I have ever been around. 16 hours in a car, and I began to understand why my brother Sean had the heart that he did. It's because his mother taught him 
that serving God was the greatest privilege. It didn't matter what you did in the house of God. It didn't matter who was watching. When you do it for the Lord, God sees you. And what is done in secret is rewarded in public. And he was faithful with little, is given much. But I can't tell you that I did everything right in that car ride because I started to just get a little bit, little bit like pity patty. Because I was from the Midwest and I never really, like you guys, grew up around the beach. And I didn't get to see a lot of the ocean. And so, man, we drove entirely just by the beach, like the entire coast down and the entire coast up. And, the uh, dude, all of the banners, the, you know, the, the entire billboards are, Cocoa Beach is coming up. Have the time of your life. Pull off now. Cocoa Beach. You know, this beach, this beach, this beach, this beach. And so I just couldn't take it on the way back because it was so sunny. I could see the orange groves, which kind of lined the area of the highway before you get to the coast, and it was like five minutes away, and I'm just seeing all the signs, and I let out my pity. Now, Sean took me to the beach that night. It was pitch black when we first got there to Miami. I, I told him, you got to take me, and then he climbed the coconut tree for me. He impressed me. He's like, man, I do this on my island all the time, and he climbed the coconut tree. I was so impressed, and you know, like, I made him do that, too, because I'm like, he's like, I could climb this, man. I'm like, no, you can't. I want to see you climb this, and so he climbed the coconut tree for real story. So we're driving back. The pity gets me, man. Like I'm feeling sorry for myself. And I go, you know, I just, I just wish that, you know, we had more time and, and we could just go to the beach. You know, this last, because it was my first year of Bible college. And I go, you know, this last year of Bible college, all we ever do is go to the inner city. Then we go to Bourbon Street and people hate us everywhere we go. And it's always disgusting. It's disgusting in the projects. It's disgusting on Bourbon Street. And we're like, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I wish we could just stop here. And I'm going off like that. And she interrupts me and she says, don't say that man. She says, man, I live with the beach in my backyard, man. Every day I see the beach. Every day I wake up and see the beach. She said, but what you do is the greater thing. She said, you serve God's people. You do it for the Lord. I'm doing this accent like I'm loving this accent. I don't know how good it is, but I'm like loving it right now. You do it for the Lord, man. She said, in heaven, you will have great reward for what you've done for the Lord. Tears started coming down my eyes. No joke. She starts to then sing a hymn in my car. And I felt like I was sitting like what we would learn in, later in the Bible, like Phoebe or Dorcas or a mighty woman of God. Like I'm like just rocked. And I learned that that's where the heart comes from. I watched my mother, and I, you know, I didn't pull it all together, but I started to learn that next year how to pull these stories together. I remember one year my mom took me to the church to pick weeds, and she took garbage bags with her. She said, you just bring your skateboard. We're going to be here for a while. And she filled up garbage bags of weeds and picked them for the church. I remember my dad, you know, helping out people that needed a car, letting them borrow a car just because they needed a place, a, a way to drive, to go to work, and all of these different things. And it's like I began to understand in ministry, it's not going to be about here holding the mic. It's going to be out there serving the people. And if you are a true servant, you'll never stop serving the people. Even when you need others to help you serve them, you'll never think of yourself being too good. That's why on any given day, where can you see pastor? Oh, he's somewhere out there serving. He's somewhere out there helping. He's doing something. He's got his hands in something. He's not too good for what we're doing here. But the idea is I can't do it alone. And so do you see yourself in the story now? Those of you who are not deacons, do you see yourself doing that? 
and eventually becoming an elder. As we see Philip, uh, Stephen's going to die, you know, he's going to die. But Philip doesn't die. Philip goes and starts churches. But he never forgets to honor his apostles and his elders. And that's what they began to do. They began to carry on that tradition. And doesn't that sound just like Jesus who said, they will know you for your love for one another, that you love each other. See, in my family, a, a discipline is a part of love. In my family, uh, telling each other you have bad breath is a part of love. Like I literally said to myself, my wife told me about my bad breath. I was like, I ain't angry. Like I literally said that to myself because like I needed to hear that. That's love. The person who lets you walk around with bad breath, that's not love. And it was funny because I'll just tell you guys this and those watching on the down low. When my wife came up to me yesterday and she was talking about the pastor appreciation stuff, I said, man, your breath stinks. Put this mint in your mouth right here. And I just gave, I, I paid her back the favor. I just paid her back the favor because literally she came all up in my face and she was talking. And I was like, baby, your breath stinks. Let me give you that. And I gave her a mint. So if you saw my wife come from there over here with a mint now in her cheek and her mouth, it's because I had to hook her up. But that's love. Love says sometimes you're not ready for something. I tell my kids, you're not ready for this yet. You're not ready for this. Sometimes love says, okay, I've given you a shot. You haven't done it, but we need to practice more before you do this again. Love sometimes says the tough things. But we're going to be known by our love for each other because we're here to serve each other. We're here to love people as we're loving God. Amen. Let's pray, Job. Uh, let's just get Joby to shut it off this time. I'll let you do that. Father, we thank you for what you're doing today in us and through us. We pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will radically change our lives to be servants and to be like these first deacons and to raise up more disciples so that the church can grow. And Lord, we pray that you'll give us grace. You'll give us wisdom. You'll give us faith, oh God. You'll give us power, oh Lord. You will move through us in a mighty way, Father God, that the world will want what we have. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Let's give it up for Jesus.